You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Amen. You may have your seats today. But before I get into the sermon today, there's something that's on my heart that I wanted to to share with you that we might celebrate it together. On February 16th, 2014, uh, a small new church that had about 10 or 15 members at the time met at 2801 Schoolhouse Road and what was our first ever Sunday worship service, six years to the day before today. Today is our six-year mark of celebrating times together in God's word, times of singing, times of worshiping, times of sitting under the proclaimed word of God. Can somebody say amen or praise God or hallelujah, a hand clap to the Lord for that or something? It is, it's a blessing, and honestly, oftentimes church plants don't make it this far. There's much spiritual opposition. There, there's a lot of work to be done when trying to form something out of nothing. I just want to take a few minutes just to celebrate that God has brought us to where we are now, and we look forward to what he will continue to do in and through our church. Amen. Well, did we, if you've been with us, we're still continuing our series called Why I Am a Christian. Why I Am a Christian. We'll be spending most of our time in 2 Timothy today. Most of our time will be there. We'll hit a few other scriptures even before we get there, and we'll hit a few other scriptures after we get there as well. Our time together today, we'll be focusing on the book of 2 Timothy. Specifically today, I want to talk to us about doubt. You've been with us throughout the series. You know, we've been talking about faith. We've been talking about why we believe the things that we believe, not just what we believe, but why do we believe that God exists? Why do we believe that Jesus is who he said that he is? Why do we believe in and trust the Bible? Why do we have faith? Now, obviously, the counter, the other side to that coin then is doubt. Why do we not follow those doubts? I want to make sure I talk very clearly today about our doubts because we live in a world where it's oftentimes highly esteemed to doubt and deconstruct readily held ideas and beliefs. This is a very common thing in our culture today. I want to make sure we understand doubt because if we don't have a handle on what do we do when we think about doubts, when people bring doubts to us, I fear that we will struggle mightily in our faith. Today, I want to talk specifically about doubting our doubts. Doubting our doubts. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, I go by Ant. I get the privilege of serving as pastor here at Midtown Two Notch. If you're new, very glad that you're here worshiping with us. I believe this message today will be very relevant for all of us, as I believe from time to time we all are confronted with doubts. How do we understand our doubts? How do we wrestle with our doubts? How do we do these things faithfully? I want to start off by trying to give us a bit of an understanding of what faith is, and then we'll, we'll turn the corner and go towards what doubt is. I'll start in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. Again, I'll start in Hebrews 11. And I'll read verses 1 through 3. It reads, Now faith is the, some of y'all know this, knew this scripture maybe in the King James Version growing up. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. <laughs> I'm going to be with the ESV today. It says the conviction of things not seen. Focus on, the, on those last two words, of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. 
By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. I want to make sure we focus and realize how much this verse and the next passage that we'll go to as well focuses on sight. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 says, For we walk by faith, not by what? In John chapter 20, verse 28 through 29, this is after Thomas is doubting that Jesus was actually resurrected. And, and Jesus invites Thomas in to come and see and touch the holes in his hands. We pick up in this conversation, verse 28. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God, verse 29. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Biblically speaking, faith is set in opposition to sight, not in opposition to reason. Many people believe that faith is all about not accepting reason or logic and just throwing reason and logic to the side and just accepting things by faith. Biblically speaking, faith is set in an opposition to sight. We have faith in things that we do not see. It doesn't mean we turn off our minds and don't think critically about things. It just means that we can't see the things that we are believing. The Bible calls this faith. That's very important that we understand faith. That will help us to understand the counterpart, which is Doubt. How does doubt work? How does doubt affect us? I want to primarily focus on giving us three realities today about doubt that I believe will help us in our walk of faith, in pursuing and growing in our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. Second Timothy chapter 2, let's start it at verse 11. We'll read verse 11 and part of verse 12, and then we'll talk about it just a little bit. Paul is writing to Timothy, his most likely his closest disciple, someone he has mentored, someone he refers to as a son in the ministry. This is the last letter that we know of from Paul. As we'll see a little bit later on in our time together today, this is actually the letter that he writes as he is looking at his death. He knows he's about to die. He writes this letter to Timothy, and he has some encouraging words for him. Starting in verse 11, the saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. He tells Timothy this is a trustworthy saying. This is often referred to as the resurrection or maybe the resurrection of the church. That after we die in this life, we go on to be with him forever. When he comes back for his people, even our bodies will be resurrected and we will go and live with him forever. He's reminding Timothy of this, And he tells Timothy to remind those that he is leading of this same thing. Jump down to verse 14. He says, remind them of these things. Remind your people of the fact that this is true, that this life isn't all that there is, that if we endure with him in faith in this life, that we will go on and be with him forever. We will reign with him. And he goes on to explain something very important. Jump down to verse 16. He says, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenius and Philetus. Paul is saying that there is some talk that is irreverent to God that is spreading like gangrene there in the church in Ephesus that Timothy is leading. I'm not sure if you're familiar with gangrene, but it's like this death of, of cells and tissue that spreads oftentimes until that specific part of the body has to be cut off. 
He's saying this irreverent talk about God. He's going to explain specifically what irreverent talk he's talking about, he's referring to. But he's saying this irreverent talk about God is spreading amongst the congregation like gain green. He says among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. Now he's going to describe a little bit about what these two guys are doing in the church. Verse 18. Who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. So just so we make sure we understand the flow of thought that Paul is having here, he reminds Timothy of the realities of the resurrection. After this life, we're going to be with God and we're going to reign with him, right? Many have called this the resurrection of the saints, the resurrection of the church. And then he says, now avoid this irreverent babble, this foolish talk that's going on, specifically that's being led by these two guys. It's spreading like gangrene and it is upsetting the faith of some. So remind your people that when we leave this earth, we're going to go reign with him because their talk about the resurrection resurrection haven't already taken place, and so there's no hope in us going to be with him now, is, is disturbing the faith, is upsetting the faith of some. They're causing people to doubt the truth. My aim today is not to get into all of the false teachings that they were spreading, but rather to use this as an example to expose the nature of doubt, how it affects us individually, how it may affect us corporately as well. Here's the first point that I want to bring out. The first reality about doubt is that doubt is just faith in disguise. Doubt is faith in disguise. I don't think we often consider doubt correctly. Notice that Paul says that these two men are upsetting the faith of some. He is causing doubt in some who are in the church. But the way they are doing that is not just by spreading questions, but by giving a false truth, saying the resurrection has already taken place. So they're giving a false belief to people that's causing them to doubt the belief that they have in God, and specifically the belief that they have through the teaching of Paul and, the, and him as an apostle and others. And they're causing people to doubt their faith and what they have believed. But he does it not simply by asking questions, but by sliding them a false belief. I want to quote a man named Michael, P I'm not sure how to say his last name, Michael P. He's a Hungarian and British scholar. He's an expert scholar in a variety of fields. And he wrote a work called Personal Knowledge where he has this quote. Skeptical doubt always contains an element of belief. Doubt and belief are ultimately equivalent. The doubting of any explicit statement denies one belief in favor of other beliefs that are not doubted for the time being. What's his point? He's saying if you have a belief and then you have doubt in that belief, underneath that doubt is always a different belief. It's always one belief that leads you away from another belief. You never believe in something and then just stop believing in it without going to another belief that comes against your original belief. So doubt is actually a form of faith in something else. It's actually faith by a different name. All of us, well, all or at least all that I have been in contact with, Christian institutions, organizations, denominations, and oftentimes churches have what we call a statement of faith. This states and clarifies what we believe and what we do not believe. Well, worldviews of doubt come with the same thing. They come with statements of faith as well. These beliefs that lead us away from our previously held beliefs. For example, 
If you have a doubt that says, I don't think my team can win the championship this year, that means you conversely believe that there are better teams that will win. It's not just that you're down on your team. You're, you're saying something very specific about other teams as well. There's always another underneath belief that is counteracting the first belief. I want to quote Tim Keller because he applies this specifically to our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, to move from religion to secularism is not so much a loss of faith as a shift into a new set of beliefs and into a new community of faith, one that draws the lines between orthodoxy and heresy in different places. He's saying if you turn away from faith in Christ and turn to something else, you didn't just simply begin to live a life that is opposite or devoid of faith. You just simply changed communities of faith that, that, that declare truth to be something completely different. When we do not believe, when we do not continue and endure in faith, when we doubt our faith, it is because we have accepted another belief, whether we realize it or not. This is what Paul was warning Timothy against, that they've told, they've upset the faith of some by swerving from the truth and saying, hey, this resurrection that Paul was talking about is actually already taking place, so you might as well just live however you want to live right now, because we're not going to go on to be with God, because this resurrection has already taken, taken place, so they are disturbing, upsetting the faith of some. My senior year of college was a very difficult year for me. It was the time in my life where I've experienced and wrestled with and really experienced so much fear and anxiety because I was dealing with so much doubt at the time. I'd heard some, uh, maybe some clever arguments that had convinced me that if I cannot tangibly see God with my eyes, if I cannot tangibly touch him, then I actually have no reason to believe that he actually exists and he actually is who he says that he is. It was a very, very difficult time for me. I, did, I don't even think I told many people at all at this point. But I mean, it was to the point that for me, I remember crying out to God, God, help me to continue to believe because I feel like I'm falling away. I mean, literally it was to the point for me where I grew up going to church all the time, have believed in God for as long as I can remember. And I remember being at a point my senior year of college thinking, God, I don't know if I'm going to be a Christian next month. I don't know if I'm going to continue in the faith. This was a terrifying time for me. It led me down this path of much anxiety, much fear. In retrospect, all my doubts ended up coming from the fact that I was beginning to believe that it was foolish for me to put my hope and faith in something that I could not scientifically prove and wrap my mind around. I didn't realize that that's what I was believing, so I didn't question that statement of faith, which requires faith in and of itself. For someone to actually fully declare that I can't believe in a God unless I can touch him and see him, or maybe another way to say it is, there's no way that God can exist if I can't wrap my mind around them, is actually a belief statement. That's actually a faith. It's actually saying that the only way, because there's, no, there's no way to prove it. It's actually saying the only way that God exists is if I can understand him and, and wrap my mind around him. It, it was, and it wasn't until I was able to identify that that's the belief that was underneath all of my doubt that I was able to actually begin to walk in freedom from that doubt. Does that make sense? It wasn't until I was able to identify the positive statement that was, that was lurking underneath what was drawing me away from my faith. And the, and the irony is, I was actually beginning to believe on one hand. I thought that I was believing that I can't actually live a life of faith because I can't prove it, but I was just exchanging that for another life of faith and something that I couldn't prove. That my doubt was just faith in disguise. It was faith by a different name. 
it was me. And then what I began to see was that I was just worshiping my own mind, my own intellect. And I was saying that if God doesn't fit within my understanding, then he can't be real. And it wasn't until I began to realize what, what statement of faith I had now accepted that I was able to bring that same energy of critique when I was critiquing my faith in God to my doubts that I was accepting at the time. I wasn't critiquing my doubts in the same way that I was critiquing my faith in God. And it wasn't until I began to do that that I was actually able to strengthen and walk in faith as I am called to and as God would have. Let me try to give another example. One of the most, one of the most common, excuse me, causes of doubt in a loving and all-powerful God is the suffering that we often experience. It's often difficult for us to keep our faith in God at times when maybe we've lost a loved one or maybe when we have experienced some other form of suffering. It's often difficult to, for us to believe that God can actually love us and still allow this thing to happen to us or maybe happen to a loved one of ours. And I want to try to say this in a way that's sensitive to the very real grief that we often experience. But even in situations like that, we have to try to ask ourselves, well, what is the, the positive statement that I'm believing under that? And I believe oftentimes we will come, we will arrive at the conclusion that we're actually believing that there's no way that God can be who he says he is and allow this to happen. Well, that's a statement of faith. You can't prove that. You can't see that. That's a statement of faith. You've accepted a new belief system if that's where you are. Our doubt is faith in disguise. Let me take it to another level. Some, for some of us, it's not as much of grief as it is disappointment. I thought God was going to give me this. He has not, so I'm really struggling to believe that he is good and that he is for me and that he's exactly who he says he is. I thought I would have achieved this level of success. I thought I would have had this form of relationship in my life at this time, but I do not have it. And so now I'm doubting maybe God isn't exactly who he says that he is. We've, we've substituted one faith for another because you can't prove that those things are true about God. You're taking that on blind faith. You're taking that on blind faith to say that well, God can't be who he says he is if I don't have what I wanted. We're saying there's no way that God can actually be good, that God can actually be loving and not give me the things that I want. We've accepted faith. Maybe we don't have the possession that we thought that we would have at this time. Maybe we don't have the quote-unquote quality of life or style of life or stage of life that we thought we had. And because of that, now we're doubting God. You've accepted a belief system. We must doubt our doubts. That same energy that you come with when you're critiquing your faith, bring that same energy to critique this new faith system that you have. Bring the same level of critique to the underlying belief statement that you have. Underneath it all is oftentimes a belief that, well, if God was truly God, I would be able to understand why he does what he does. If I can't understand it, then he can't be who he says he actually is. If I can't wrap my mind around it. Doubts are belief in disguise. That's point number one. Doubt is belief or just faith in disguise. Number two is that doubts are socially formed. Doubts are socially formed. I want to look back at 2 Timothy chapter 2. I'm going to hit 16 through 18 again. Notice the nature of this doubt that Paul is describing to Timothy. But avoid irreverent babble, excuse me, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. 
Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. They swerved from the truth. They started sharing this false belief with others, and it spread. The people who began, who began believing these, these false truths weren't just sitting around objectively analyzing the world and all of a sudden coming up with this doubt that they're hearing. No, it is because of things that they have heard and come to believe from others. And then they, their faith was upset. This, this belief was spread to them intentionally. And this is what happens with us today as well. I want to try to give an example, even though this can be kind of difficult to see. We live in a, I want to describe our, our common, kind of, I guess, mainstream culture in two different ways. Number one, very highly individualistic. And number two, very highly focused on people being, ha- having the right to make individual decisions that work for them as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. Right? Those are, you can say those are two gospels of our, of our time today. You, you go against those things with people and they're ready to fight. Right, they're going to be ready to argue with you. You try to start giving people expectations that prevent them from living the life that they thought, that they think that they should be able to live, and people get very angry. Right? This is not every culture. This is not even most cultures that have existed in our world, but this is the culture that we currently live in, and this is causing people to doubt. This is causing people to doubt the Bible because the Bible will confront you and call you not to do things even if you don't understand it, even if you think it's too restrictive for you, even if you feel like, well, it's not hurting anybody, so I should be able to do this. So now people, because we have accepted this cultural way of thinking, because now our thoughts are socially formed by the culture around us, we have problems with the Bible. We have problems believing in what the Bible says because our doubts have been socially formed. And it's not as simple as just like, it's not, it's not peer pressure. It's not that somebody's trying to, to force you to believe something against your will and you're kind of wrestling with it. I'm saying these thought processes just get pushed onto us. These ideals, these worldviews just get pushed onto us over and over again in the movies that we watch and what we listen to in the conversations that we have at work. And these things are affecting our faith. We've accepted a new belief system that's contrary to the Bible, so it causes us to doubt the goodness of our God, our doubts are socially formed. The Bible has another word for this. The Bible warns us about an enemy called the world. Biblically speaking, this enemy known as the world, is the, is, you can define it as this collection of ungodly ideas, ungodly ways of living, worldviews, etc., that lead us away from God and what God has called us to. It's not just that our doubts are socially formed. There's an enemy behind it. That is intentionally feeding us false narratives to get us to doubt our God. I want you to see what Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 and 2 say about the world. Paul says, And you were dead in the, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, Paul says. The course of this world. When you subscribe, when you ascribe to the belief systems of, of someone, and those, especially when those belief systems become normalized within a society, then you start seeing people believing the same thing over and over again. And if you're not careful, you'll be walking on that same course. The world seeks to lay down tracks for us and that we would just drive our proverbial trains over and direct us based on shaping our worldviews and the way that we see ourselves and the way that we see God. Subtly speaking, it works to cause us to conform to his ways. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, 
but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It says the pattern of this world. A pattern is when something's repeated over and over and over again. So what happens is the world will give us these same thought processes, these worldviews over and over and over again, these false beliefs, and then it gets normalized within the culture, which means everyone is doing this and thinking the same thing over and over and over again. So you wind up with a culture that leans very heavily in one direction. And when the Bible doesn't lead in that same direction, now we have doubts because we've been conformed to the image of the world. Worldliness is subtle. It's not overt. It's not over. It's not, it's not coming at you in your face. You have to pay very close attention to what you believe, what you're thinking. You need to be able to ask yourself, what are the things that I have trouble believing the Bible on? And one of the ways you know if it's worldliness or not is that, is there, are there a lot of other people in our culture that have a problem with the same thing, believing the Bible on the same thing? If so, it's likely because you have accepted a worldly point of view, a worldly worldview, so to speak, and it is upsetting the faith of some. It is upsetting our faith. But I am glad that there is hope also in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, because he doesn't just give us a problem. He leads us and tells us the way forward. He says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He says there is a solution to this. You can actually be transformed by having your mind renewed in Christ via his word. That we're consistently being inundated with these false beliefs that lead us to doubt God and his word. Our minds are being affected by the world, but our minds can be transformed by God as we set our minds on him and his Word. If you're going to thrive as a Christian that lives in a day and age where doubt and critique are applauded, where we like to deconstruct everything, if we're going to be able to grow into maturity in Christ, where the pattern of the world is constantly feeding our doubts towards God and his word, then you need to be consistently, as a pattern, being focused on meditating on God's word. If you do not have a consistent pattern of being transformed by the renewing of your mind in God's word, you will suffer much spiritual weakness because you will continue to conform to the pattern of this world. Either your pattern is consistently meditating on the truths of the scripture, or you will just conform to the pattern of this world. This is truth for us, and many of us, our faith is being upset. We doubt God. We don't believe that he's good. We don't believe that he's true. Maybe we're not at the point where we're just walking away from the faith completely right now, but we are at a point where it's like, yeah, I just don't, I, I don't believe this to be true about God. Mm. Someone has slipped you a false belief, and we have bought into it. We must have a pattern of meditating on God's word. We need our minds on God's word. If you can, read the Bible, listen to faithful preachers of the Bible, one of the things that we do in our life group, guys, very intentionally oftentimes in our, in our Bible study portion is we ask the question, what does the scripture say about God? What does the scripture say about us? Worldly narratives will oftentimes give you false truths about God, false truths about who you are. We need to continue to have our minds renewed in the word of God and ask the questions as we go through the scriptures. What is true about God? What is true about us? What is true about people? What is true about his creation that our minds can be renewed, that we wouldn't just be conforming into the image of this world. We so often use our time consuming so many things that, that reinforce worldly ways of thinking. And then we act as if we don't have time to meditate on God's word. We need, you need God's word the way a thirsty person needs water. 
I don't care if you like it. I don't care how you feel about it. You need it for your survival. You need it for the survival of your faith. You know how many people today are saying, I'm done with Christianity. I'm walking away from the faith. You need the Bible the way you need water, the way you need food. You need it. Okay, you don't feel like it. I'm sorry. You need the word of God. You need to make it a pattern in your life. Read it. Read it by yourself. Read it with others. If you can, study it. Study it by yourself. Study it with, with others. Devote your time to hearing it proclaimed. Consistently sing songs filled with truths that we find in the word of God. We need this for our faith because we are constantly being inundated with false truths that lead us to doubt, that disturb our faith. And since what we believe is socially formed, you need to devote yourself to walking in unity and fellowship and oneness with other believers that can help you see things from a biblical perspective. Otherwise, all the people that are around you will just be feeding you false narratives that will cause you to have your faith upset and will cause you to doubt God. You need to be consistently around brothers and sisters in the faith that can encourage you in the truth of God's word. This is extremely important. Point number one is that doubt is faith in disguise. Point number two is that doubt is socially formed. Point number three is that doubts are biased. Doubts are biased. I want to continue on in 2 Timothy. With this time, we hit chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. 2 Timothy 4, 9 and 10. Every time I read these scriptures, it just causes me to be, to be nervous and, and to have a sense of zeal around encouraging us in our faith. 2 Timothy 4, 9 and 10, do your best to come to me soon. So this is Paul near the end of his life. He knows he's about to die. He's asking Timothy to come to him. Here's why he says, come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. In his concluding remarks, he talks about Demas. Timothy would have known who Demas was. Demas was a, a fellow servant in the gospel. Paul is in prison at this time. He is likely the face of the Christian movement to the Gentile world, anywhere outside of where Jews were, were the predominant population and demographic there. He's now arrested. Many people have deserted Paul at this point. Demas is one of them because he has fallen in love with this world, the present world. This isn't the only time we see Demas mentioned in the scriptures. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 14, Paul says, Luke, the, the beloved physician, greets you as, do, as does Demas. So this is him concluding, and Demas is brought up again in Colossians. But this time he's saying he's with me, he's greeting me. Paul is saying that Demas is with me, he greets you as well as Luke. And then we'll look at Philemon, verses 23 and 24. Philemon only has one chapter. Verse 23 Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. Verse 24, and so do Mark, I can't say that name, Demas and Luke, my fellow workers. He calls Demas a fellow worker in the gospel, but Demas fell in love with his present age and is no longer with Paul. He's no longer living out the practical implications of his faith of continuing to be a minister of the gospel. Here's the thing about Demas. His problem is not a lack of knowledge about God. His problem is that he is no longer accepting it to be true. Think about that. He was a minister of the gospel. He's with Paul. He's seen miracles that Paul has worked. He's seen what God is doing, but yet he turns away from the faith. The problem here is not knowledge. What I want to preach and proclaim to you today is that his faith was affected by his love. His faith was affected by his love. His faith, his beliefs were biased. 
biased. He began to love something else more than he loved God, and now he's no longer walking in faith, and now he's now being led by his doubts because he began to love something other than God. His faith, his belief, his doubt is biased. It's not that we, we tend to believe that doubt is this objective thing, that faith is just irrational. It doesn't involve any type of thought at all. But doubt, when you doubt, that's more rational. That's when you're really in your mind. That's when you're really thinking critically. No, no, no. He knew the truth, but he fell in love with the world, Paul says, and now he was no longer living in the truth that he had been taught. Second Timothy is one of my favorite books. It's the first book that I went through as I was really being taught how to study the Bible. One of the things I love about the book of 2 Timothy is that one of the biggest themes is the endurance of the faith. Very relevant for our topic today. The endurance of the faith. If you're familiar with the first chapter of 2 Timothy, you know that Paul, he's encouraging Timothy, but he goes back to, to, to Timothy's grandmother and to his mother and now to him, showing that this faith has been passed down from generation to generation. And at the end of chapter 1, Paul gets into a bit of how all those in Asia have deserted him. They're turning away from him, him being the face of the Christian movement to the Gentiles, likely meaning that most of them have turned away from the faith as well. You go into chapter 2 in 2 Timothy, and Paul is telling Timothy to pass down what he has learned to the next generation that they might pass Pass it on to the generation after that. This book is about the endurance of the faith. If you go into chapter 3, Paul tells Timothy about those who seem to have faith but are actually just imposters. And he tells Timothy, but for you, you continue on in what you've been learning. You continue to endure in the faith as you remember who taught you these things and you remember the scriptures as you were taught even since you were very young. And then we get to chapter 4 where Paul is talking about his death that is coming. This is what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And shortly after that, he says that Demas, Demas has fallen in love with the world and has just gone off to Thessalonica to follow in the pattern of the world. His not enduring in faith was not an intellectual issue. It was a heart issue. He was biased. Because he wanted something else more than he wanted to get, more than he wanted God, he began to believe in something else. He began to accept a false truth. He was biased based on what he truly desired. We were having a conversation in teaching team this past Wednesday as we were uh, in our family churches. Different pastors were coming together and talking about this concept of doubt and faith and that type of thing. And we. Sadly, we began to talk about different people that have come around Midtown and were professing faith in Christ, but now were no longer saying that they were followers of Jesus, no longer professing faith in Christ. And so we had just a sad conversation about how that has taken place. And then one of the pastors, Adam, from the downtown church said, out of the people we've talked about, name one of them that were consistent in practicing spiritual disciplines and still fell away from the faith. Name one that, were, that was consistently, ongoingly cultivating love in their heart for God and still walked away from the faith. And there was silence in the room because we could not name one of the people that had walked away from the faith. They were actually consistent in practicing the disciplines that would stir up their affections for the Lord because our doubts are biased. Because oftentimes we believe what we want to believe. We believe what we believe will grant us most joy, most peace, most happiness. As we were continuing to have this conversation, Adam then said, I believe, generally speaking, for people who walk away, they were prayerless before they were faithless. So you were prayerless way before you were faithless. Our doubts, they, they're biased. 
Why is that the case? Why does our lack of faithfulness regarding the things that help us pursue spiritual health actually cause us to be vulnerable to doubting our God and doubting his word? I want to take us back to one of the scriptures that we got into in the very beginning of this series. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Here's the key part. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. One of the points that Paul makes here is that through his creation, I don't have time to get into all of it today. We did get into that in the first week of this series. But what I want to emphasize from this passage specifically is that Paul is making the case that we all know, we all have... God has made it manifest, made it, has revealed it to us, I should say, that he actually exists through his creation. That's Paul's argument in this first chapter of the book of Romans. He even goes on so far as to say so that we are without excuse because he has revealed himself through his creation. He has revealed his attributes to us. But yet, Paul says the problem is not that we don't know enough. The problem is that we suppress the truth. Suppression is what you do when you're not prepared to deal with the reality, when you don't want to deal with the reality, when the reality is too painful, when you thought the reality will cost you too much, you don't want to deal with it, so you suppress that truth, you live in denial of that truth, you act like it's not true anymore. Paul is saying this is what we do when it comes to God, and he says we do it by our unrighteousness. So when we as followers of Jesus cease to continue on in the practices that actually help us to grow in righteousness. We're actually fueling our doubts, feeding our doubts, and starving our faith. So then it makes sense that those that we know of that have said, no, I'm no longer walking with Jesus, I'm no longer a follower of Jesus, have been prayerless, have, had not been practicing any type of spiritual disciplines to cultivate their love for the Lord, and then they walked away from the faith because in our unrighteousness, we suppress the truth. We suppress it. We, we don't want to deal with it anymore. Demas's problem wasn't a lack of understanding of the truth. It was a suppression of the truth because now he desired different things and he couldn't continue to live out this truth about who he knew God to be and still have the things that he really wanted. So now he suppressed the truth and he went off to Thessalonica to do his own thing. And in a, in a time when it is highly esteemed to doubt and question and critique everything about our faith and God's word, we need to be very careful to always make sure that we're implementing practices of Christian growth in our lives as a pattern. Specifically, I want to point out the meditating on God's word if we're going to continue on and pursue faith in him. Romans chapter 10 verse 17 says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. It says faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. If I can be transparent. This is one of my biggest fears for us as a church. This is one of my biggest fears for us as believers who have gotten used to following Jesus, walking with him, doing the Christian thing, but have no semblance of Christian discipline in our lives, but have no semblance of making time to spend time in the Word of God, of, of personal worship time, that, don't, that aren't willing to make consistent sacrifices to be with them. This, this causes me fear for us. If you're going to thrive as a Christian in this society where it's so in and so promoted and so celebrated to doubt as many established things as you possibly can, you're going to need to continue to be hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, as Paul says, if we're going to continue to walk in faith. This is vital. 
I'm not trying to be legalistic here and say, hey, God's going to love you more. God's going to like you more if you spend time in the word. What I'm saying is, no, you're going to love God more if you spend more time in his word. And that's what you need. If not, I'm afraid that your love for the things of this world will lead you away from God and you will fall away. There are so many who fall away. Demas was walking with Paul. They were starting churches together. He was a fellow laborer in the gospel, and he turned away because he fell in love with the world. Do not think you can't do the same thing. Do not think you you are above that, you are beyond that, that you somehow are so spiritual that that can never happen to you. You allow yourself to fall in love with the world. The same thing can happen to you. Feed your faith. Doubt your doubts. Meditate on it. Let's immerse ourselves in the word of God. I'm nervous that we're caring more about the things of the world than we're caring about God and his kingdom. I'm nervous at how easy it is for us to come up with excuses for not spending time in God's word. When it actually comes down to it, we just love other things more. And then when other people call us out on it, we get defensive. I'm nervous. I'm nervous that we are actually cultivating a life that walks away from faith in God because we prefer convenience. Because we prefer instant gratification, whatever makes us feel good in the moment, regardless of how it is affecting our faith in God and our love for God, I'm nervous. I'm nervous because it's likely that no matter how much for some of us we're warned in God's word against allowing our heart to grow cold towards God, we just brush it off and we're going to continue on. This is some other sermon that we've heard and not try to apply it at all to our lives, but this is urgent. I'm nervous that we might see this in the very word of God and turn a cold shoulder to it and turn a deaf ear and not seek to apply this at all to our lives going forward. I'm nervous. I'm nervous, but I'm also hopeful. I'm also hopeful that throughout this series, God has revealed to us that our doubts are a result of us suppressing the truth because of our unrighteousness. I'm hopeful because in light of that truth, the Holy Spirit actually works through us, focusing on, meditating on, believing in his word, I'm hopeful that we will begin to see more and more that he's better than anything that this world has to offer. I'm hopeful that maybe, just maybe, as we're encouraged to continue to have our eyes and our hearts and our minds on the word of God, that we will make time to read about him in his word. I'm hopeful that we'll look through the book of Exodus and see the goodness of our God, that he is powerful enough and loving enough to free his people from the spiritual oppression that they're experiencing, that they might be free to worship him together as a people. I'm hopeful that we will spend time reading as we go through the rest of the Old Testament and see a God who is loving and firm enough to warn and caution his people, but also patient enough to give them opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to repent and turn to our God. I'm hopeful that we will look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and see the king that loved us enough to step down from heaven, to come into this broken place and suffer with us that he might free us and rid us from all suffering for all eternity if we just place faith in him and become participants in his kingdom. I'm hopeful that we will see how powerful he is that the very curse of sin falls apart at his touch as he heals those whom he touches. 
that not only does the curse of sin fall apart on him, but the very kingdom of darkness and the reign of sin also falls apart at his touch as he lives a life above sin. I'm hopeful that we will go to his word, that we will see how glorious he is, that we will be reminded day in and day out that he is better than everything this world could ever possibly offer us. I'm hopeful that we will doubt our doubts. I'm hopeful that we will doubt our doubts, that we will believe, that we will pursue faith in our God through his word. I'm hopeful that we will feed and bolster our faith by being a people that are devoted to immersing ourselves in his word. In personal ways, like reading and studying in our own personal time. In corporate ways, like what we've been doing today and singing about our God and sitting under the preaching of God's word. That, he, that the Holy Spirit will work through that to bolster our faith in him. Let us press on feeding our faith through his word so that when our time to go and be with him comes, we might be able to say, as Paul did in 2 Timothy chapter 4, I just want to read verse 7 and 8 together. He says, I have fought the good fight. I'm hopeful that we'll be able to say as well, I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Let me pray for us, family. Father, we are so quick to immerse ourselves in worldly things and God, there is so much at stake there's a real enemy who's feeding us lies, whose lies are, are becoming normalized in our world and in our societies, and we're being inundated with these things that are leading us to doubt, and I feel like we're asleep to the fact that it's even happening. And God, we've seen so many who are like Demas, who were walking with you, who were laboring for your purposes and now don't claim to follow you at all and God I'm nervous I'm nervous that there are some in this room some in our church whom if things don't change that that will be them that that will be us that we would turn away because we're not cultivating faith and love in you instead of we're actually cultivating our doubts God we need your spirit this task of fighting our doubts is too great for us, but you are the author and the perfecter of our faith. But you are the one that allows us to have faith, God. Would you burden us? Would you remind us of the urgency, God? The urgency of the need day in and day out to set as a pattern in our lives that we go and we meet with you and we talk to you and we learn from you and we soak up your word as the living water that it is. God, we need deep repentance. We need real, true, lasting repentance that is spurred on by your spirit. Father, don't let us leave today and continue on neglecting our faith, refusing to cultivate love for you. God, we've just seen the world cause so much damage and upset the faith of so many. Will you strengthen us? Will you bolster us in our faith? Will you remind us every day of how important it is that we 
bolster our faith in you and our love for you through your word. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.